0: Who comes to mind when you think of some of the most influential punk rock bands of all time? Bad Brains, Black Flag, Minor Threat. Think of some groundbreaking early hip-hop artists. Run DMC, LL Cool J, Public Enemy. Now name a few Dogtown-era skateboarders that helped completely innovate the entire sport. Jay Adams, Tony Alva. What do these seemingly unrelated lists of iconic figures all have in common? This next guest photographed them all with a level of intimacy and authenticity that could only exist by being fully immersed into the culture that they represented. Everybody with an index finger and an iPhone considers themselves a photographer these days. But there's more to creating timeless imagery than simply pointing a device at someone. Today's guest didn't just document his subjects. The photographs he created of these cultural arbiters helped to visually define their entire public image. There's a long list of photographers that are inextricably associated with shooting seminal work of a particular genre, whether it's music, celebrity, sports, or fashion. But how does one person happen to have the uncanny ability to position themselves at the epicenter of so many pivotal youth movements? Is it Forrest Gump-style serendipity? Or is it passion, discipline, and a keen sense of timing and directorial skills? We'll find out as we sit down for a candid discussion with the uncompromising and unapologetic photographer who named his first book, Fuck You Heroes. Today, skater, photographer, political activist, and the person who shot my favorite Beastie Boys album cover, Mr. Glenn E. Friedman. (laughs) Glenn, good to see you, man. Thanks for sitting down.
1: Good to see you, too. It looks like you're in a nice location.
0: Well, hey, well, the, the last time I saw you, um, well, we did we both did some really kind of similar projects. We both put out a photography book this year, very different subjects. Mine was uh, chronicling 10 seasons of surf culture on the North Shore. Yours, is a book called Together Forever. Really amazing collection of never before seen photos of the Beastie Boys and Run DMC. And, you know, for me, one of the most intimidating parts of, of the process was having to write the foreword. And I know you wrote like a, 5,000 word introduction for, for for your book. Tell me a little bit about that process. Was it more revealing and intimidating to have to put words on paper and talk about things you've never really spoke about before, as opposed to, you know, putting the pictures out there and, you know, how was it received? Are you you happy
1: with it? Yeah. I don't consider myself a writer, but you know, I've been writing really extended, um, captions on the Instagram, which I was very late to coming to, but I figured once I started doing it, I started, you know, actually really telling the stories when I had time to uh, behind some of the photos. I don't really put extended captions in my book. And the feedback that I was getting off of Instagram was pretty, you know, it was pretty great. People really loved it. And I thought that they were really enjoying it. And people were commenting as much as the photos, they loved the stories because a lot of them have seen all the photos before. So that was part of the inspiration. But the real inspiration came when I saw the BC boys themselves do their live show to promote their own book. And when I sat there for over two hours and saw them telling their stories and revealing themselves in a way that I feel like everybody knows them, like I know them now. It's like, they they really, that's really those guys. That's what they're really like. You know, it might look rehearsed and it might look awkward or whatever it is, but that's them, you know? And sitting there with some uh, friends of mine and seeing everyone from, you know, the old days that was there in the house in Brooklyn or the first time was even in Manhattan, actually, where I saw them. Um, at the very, I saw the very first and the very last show that they did, I think they did over a dozen shows and it was just really inspiring to me. And, and after seeing the reception of those stories and and the stories that I had, uh, you know, that I was getting feedback on from Instagram, I just went home and just started writing after seeing their show one night. And I just, it took me about three or four days, uh, at nighttime, you know, and everything was quiet and I just knocked out like 5,000 words and I told my editor, get ready. And she was really upset because we're already over the amount of pages um, that we were supposed to do, and I had so many photos. It's a two hundred and twenty-four page book. You know, we had a, and I had a ton of photos. It's not all unreleased photos. A matter of fact, I mean, the book is a lot of the photos, all the classic photos that everyone's seen of mine, the Run DMC and the Beastie Boys are all in there. Plus, you know, the outtakes are just one different, you know, different shots, just you know, the next shot on the roll, the shot previous on the roll, or whatever it is. But it is definitely all my best stuff of both of those groups is in this book, whether it's a small picture or a huge spread, but yeah. And then, you know, I wrote that essay and I started sharing it with some friends because it was kind of a uh, revealing and very personal story, you know, and some of it critical and uh, some of it self-critical, some of it critical of the artists themselves a little bit, and certainly of the business aspects that went through some time. but you know, it's not every story, but it's a lot of the stories. And, um, and it gives context to the photos in the book rather than you know having the captions long extended captions on the pages let's have the photos as big as they could be and let people read everything up front so then they could figure it out as they go through the book that was my thought um and it you know and everyone loved it i mean i really didn't you know i got a couple bits of feedback of you know people said to maybe word this different or word that different when i was you know when i was disrespecting you know some of the disrespectful record labels but other than that um everything went uh Every, yeah, it was, it was really good. It was a very positive experience. I was really happy about it.
0: Was there something about the process that was, was it more vulnerable for you to have to put that out there in words as opposed to the photographs? Cause the photographs, like you, you know, you have a whole career worth of images that you've been used to putting out there and you kind of generally know how people are going to react to it, but was there some trepidation about writing the forward? I and mean, it's much more personal. Oh, yeah. To yeah. Write.
1: Well, I had, I had Chris Rock write the forward. I'm so sorry, not introduction, introduction. the forward, the
0: introduction. Sorry. Sorry. Yeah.
1: No, no, but I'm just saying my introduction was going to follow Chris Rock's you know, too. So it's like, you know, you got to, you know, step up and do what you got to do. But I feel like, you know, it's, it's, it is, you know, revealing and whatever, what was the word that you used? You know, intimidating and vulnerable and, you know, it's just vulnerable, a little bit vulnerable, you know, and, but yeah, you know, it's just, you know, yeah, the pictures are out there. Pictures are always out there. I don't have any problem with the pictures, the words, you know, behind them is sometimes, you know, it's, it's pretty fun actually though you let people know what's really going on if they're interested now they know yeah there's something
0: something kind of cathartic about just being like ah, fuck it i'm gonna put it out there and let the chips fall where they may yeah 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 you know yeah it's all good um so you know the the beastie boys mean an awful lot to an awful lot of people i mean they have a really devout following and
1: well you know this book i just want to correct you it's like it's run dmc and the beastie boys and run dmc originally they came to me to do a beastie boys book you know Rosoli. And I didn't want to do that, you know. Run DMC is the reason there is a Beastie Boys, right? And so, people, I put them together in this book. I forced it to happen because those are the guys that need the respect. Because without them, there wouldn't be the other. Um Their name comes first because they are first, and then there comes the Beastie Boys. As far as I'm concerned, um, I know that they have a big following and they're very creative guys and they're incredible artists. But it, it has to be clear that it's Run DMC and the Beastie Boys, and and that, and that's what it's about you know, together forever is their song title together forever is the name of the tour that they all went on together. But that song and just that title to me expresses, you know, racial unity and people just getting along and working together. And that it's something that's lasting. Right. And that's where, you know, you're not asking me where the title of the book comes from, but I'm just trying to stop you before you get too far ahead on the Beastie Boys. It's enough. People talk too much about the Beastie Boys. Everyone knows everything about them. I, I mean, and particularly they got the show on, you know, on, uh, you know, Apple TV and all that stuff now. And they're a great band, but you just got to keep it in context. The book is Run DMC and the Beastie Boys and Run DMC is very important. And without them, there wouldn't be any Beastie Boys. So I don't like it when people just concentrate just on the white boys because that's fucking another form of racism. So,
0: I mean, I, I feel like you were there for so many iconic moments with both BCs, but especially Run DMC as well. And in some cases, your imagery really helped define visually like who run DMC was in the public's mind. Um, like what, what is it? Can you tell us the biggest misconception about those guys? Or can you tell us something about run DMC that only somebody with your insight and access would really be able to, to
1: have context about? I could see now that you adjusted your language very quickly to, to, to run DMC. Well, no, and not I mean, doing, but it does both, apply maybe more. It applies to, the to, it applies to
0: both, you know, I mean, I, I, yeah, yeah. I, I, I'm going to back it up because I'm, mean, know like you're, I, just to put it in context, I know some of your imagery was so iconic that of of Run DMC that it was it was. But let me make this
1: clear. Bitten. I know Justin Jay and you're a friend of mine, so I'm going to fuck with you, just like we normally do. So <laughs> let's right. keep going. I just want people to know that this is not anything antagonistic. This is my friend. This is a great guy. Okay. He's a good photographer. I'm just I'm, I'm and, trying. I'm
0: I'm just trying and to and juice some details, Glenn. Him. You've you've been there yeah, for yeah, some yeah. Cool shit, so I'm. Uh, yeah, yeah. I'll, I'll be no, candid. I, I want to hear some juice. Tell me tell me something I we know, don't know think about Run DMC. I don't.
1: Yeah, I don't. I, I don't think it's fair. As you know, when you're with artists and you're creating imagery and you're making images of people, it's like you have moments with them that isn't for public consumption. That's why you create the great stuff that you do. You know, if you were shooting Puffy for as many years as you were and you told everyone all the stories of all the parties and and how he asked you to do this or do that, it's like, then you wouldn't get another client, you know, to work for, right? It's like because they don't want all those stories out there necessarily. You know, they don't want everyone or anything. You have a personal relationship with them, you know my relationship with run DMC started very soon. They respected me very quickly because they had seen my work and done other things. And, but the thing about working with those guys is they're very nice people. First of all, they were all incredibly fucking nice guys, very middle-class clean, you know, guys, uh, uh, you know, run DMC. And they loved a good picture as much as anyone else did. You know, when people were able to recognize a great photograph, they knew it. They knew it when they saw it. They might have not have known it beforehand, but when they saw it, they knew it. They were like, oh, wow, this is like another level. I, I didn't even know that you could do this. And this is fantastic. And people are really happy, whether you're talking about management, you know, or the group themselves or, or people working around the group. So, you know, it, it worked out really well. I mean, like I told the story in the book, you know, there was a point where we had just met, we hadn't been working for maybe a, a month or two. not even that. And I was still in college in California at UCLA and I hadn't moved back to New York yet. And they were like, we only want Glenn to shoot our photos. We don't even want anyone else to shoot our photos because he is the one capturing and composing images of us the way we want to be seen. Right. And with a high quality that hadn't been seen really in hip hop before, Uh, you know, I mean, certainly there was a few people, but they were mostly shooting in studios. You know, I shot them in the neighborhood and not that some people didn't have good shots in the neighborhood, but, you know, I hung out with them there and, and, you know, and did a lot of stuff. Um, over several days with them, you know, and got to go to all the different spots, not, you know, just one location. Anyways. Yeah. You know, and for the Beastie Boys, it's like, you know, I knew them as a punk rock band, right? So, and I didn't really respect them much as a punk rock band. And, but I liked them as people. And we had some mutual friends, as I say in the book. And when they came to California, I was just being, I was beginning to be really inspired by hip hop. You know, I really loved Run DMC's first album that had just come out around the time I had the Beastie Boys had come out on the Madonna tour. Actually it was actually it was a year and a half later, but it was before the King of Rock album came out. They were still just riding. Run MC was still riding on the first album. Beastie Boys came out. They only had like two singles out, you know, on the old Burgundy Def Jam that was being run out of Rick Rubin's Formal. At the moment, those were really cool records. Cause they were like, these are people that I know making a rap record. And I was beginning to love rap music, you know? So and I just stopped managing suicidal tendencies. I had produced their record in 1983. It was like, you know, became the most successful, you know, punk rock record of the 80s. I'm not going to say it was better than Black Flag or Dead Kennedys or anything from the UK. It's just because it had that one song, it got very popular. Um, but I just quit that, you know, rock stars and big egos, even with, in punk rock, got a little out of control. And so I quit. And then the Beastie Boys came to town like six months later, coincidentally, and I really had this energy. You know, I was, uh, you know, in my early 20s, maybe, uh, you know, yeah, 22 or something like that. And, And I really wanted to help promote them. And I really wanted to help show them in a different light. And we just had a blast. We just had a lot of fucking fun. And we got pictures of them. You know the first time that we actually shot pictures. I never shot pictures of them as a the punk rock band because I didn't think they were worthy of shooting, quite honestly. And but as a hip hop group, I was again. I was really inspired by what they were doing, and they were just so fun to hang out with. We just had so much fun, and we just drove all around LA before their show every night. And then we, you know, and and we just did a lot of great pictures. You know, some of that imagery you know, it was used to promote this movie, you know, you know, 30 years later, 35 years later, it's still the stuff that stands to test of time, which is really good. But, you know, I think a lot of that has to do with, I mean, and that's a lot of their relationships. I mean, they work with their directors and, you know, and, and other photographers because they're friends with them. You know, they, they, they do become, they work with people that they like, I think. And, and although I don't know if we always, I mean, we always liked each other, but I think I was a little tougher on them than most of the other friends of theirs. You know, most of the other friends were kind of like keep people tagged along. I was established before they were, so they couldn't really, I I didn't, I didn't deal with them in that way. You know what I'm saying? I was like, okay, you guys got to listen to me. If you want good photos, this is what we're going to do. And you're going to listen to me. I never followed their instincts. Although I did ask them for ideas eventually. I mean, by the time we did, uh, you know, the check your head album cover Adam Yauke had very specific things in mind that he wanted to do. And we kind of melted his ideas with my ideas to, you know, get those images. I mean, I knew a feeling he wanted and that's a beautiful thing. He didn't necessarily have an image. He had a feeling that he wanted to convey. And that was something that I was able to pull out of them for that cover.
0: Basically what you're saying is you challenge those guys, you know, to be like, let's get work done. And not just, I'm not here to tag along. I'm not here to have a good time. I'm here to take good photos.
1: I'm here to make good motherfucking photos. I don't take them. I make them. And that's what's going on there, right? It's like, you know, I'm definitely not fucking tagging along. I'm not a fucking documentarian. I'm making good photographs of you because you inspire me. And that's what we're fucking doing. It, it, it's, it's, I am definitely a dictator on my photo shoots. There's no question about it. And that's why people want me to do it. You know, I'm not there to follow anyone else's instructions. I've been doing this since I was 14, motherfuckers. You could just, you just listen to me and we'll get some good work done. Whether it's fucking Beastie Boys or Run DMC or LO Cool J or Chuck D or, you know, or Tony Alva or anybody, you know, uh, you know, Minor Threat, Black Flag, whatever. I mean, I know what I want to get and everyone works with me, you know, and I'm not like, I'm not necessarily pushing around people that I don't know, but my friends, I'm telling them, this is what we got to do to get the good picture. You know, when I was younger, you know, in the skate days, I was definitely getting pushed around, but I was getting the photos, right? I mean, I was 14, you know, in the Punk Frost days, there was already people who were in those bands, knew me from Skateboarder Magazine, you know, they, they were skaters, so they knew and so they had respect for me. And um, except for maybe some of the older guys, some of the bands, they didn't really know or care too much, but they could tell that I knew what the fuck I was doing. And so I did it, you know, and that's why we create the stuff that people still remember to this day.
0: That's so, I mean, there's a lot of photographers that are kind of known for, for capturing images within like a certain genre, whether it's, you know, sports or rock and roll or whatever. Um, you know, with you, like just in the last couple minutes, you've mentioned, you know, you have like skateboarding and punk rock and, and hip hop. And I think the the connection between skateboarding and punk rock might make a little more sense. It dovetails a little, you know, better. Um, but somebody like, Tony Alva and Slick Rick those are pretty disparate subjects like how have you been able to so effectively toggle between these two different or multiple worlds
1: Well you know one happened after the other there was skateboarding then there was punk rock then there was hip hop I mean as far as how it became known to the public they they were all kind of But I feel like a lot of people a lot of people
0: 70s. Most most photographers or a lot of artists tend to really shine for one specific thing and maybe don't aren't, don't have the skill set to to kind of adapt into a different a different genre. But that's not you've been able to to do that really effectively. I mean, I,
1: well, I think starting in skateboarding because of the environment that you're dealing in and the people that I was hanging out with, it was a real proving ground. I had to prove myself every day to be worthy to be there in secret spots and in particular locations, and even the fact that these guys had to come pick me up to go shoot photos and to go do stuff. I didn't have a car yet. I was too young and, you know, and things, you know, it's too far to ride my skateboard or my bike. I mean, I would take buses sometimes to get to the skate park, you know, but usually that's when I would be riding. I wouldn't fucking take camera gear on a bus. I'd go to skate myself, you know? And these are all things that I was very involved in. I mean, you know, to me, skateboarding and punk rock, yeah, that's more obvious connection to people. But at the time, you know, it wasn't that obvious. And there was just a natural progression from skateboarding, you know, with this rebellious art form and activity. And then punk rock just had the same energy, right? And to me, as hip hop started coming into the picture, it was just black kids version of the same thing that punk rock was. There was, you know, and it was just right as skateboarding was going, coming down on its first downswing, punk rock was going up. You know, a lot of the punk rock bands, you know, a lot of the punk, I mean, a lot of the uh, pro skaters started punk rock bands, right? And then right as punk rock started going down in like 83 or so, it started becoming more generic you know, hip hop was coming up with albums and more artists and more access to it. You know, so one thing was going down, next thing was going up. And I was just, you know, as my one thing was going down, my, my eye was caught by this other subject. And so I went up with it and then, you know, in the down, and then this one started coming up and I was getting bored of hardcore punk as well, you know, it became really generic and whack. I don't like any of those fucking bands after like 1983, even my favorite band, Black Flag, by 1984, they fucking I thought they were horrible. I didn't like the music at all. And I love Black Flag, don't get me wrong. But I mean, you know, post 1984, just like it wasn't it just was nothing to me. It wasn't interesting. It, maybe it was too arty, whatever it was. I didn't care for it. You know, and again, I love them. They're my favorite band, but there was a peak period of, you know, output of stuff that was exciting and exhilarating and, and helped me express myself. And, you know, so and, and then of course I produced Suicidal Tendencies and in nineteen eighty-three. And that was like kind of the end for me of the whole punk rock thing. It was like, they were really exciting and they were really great at that moment in time. But then everything started like getting a bit weird and people started getting more into, you know, more classical forms of rock music. Like people were coming. a lot of the punk rock bands of that era became like heavy metal bands. They reverted back to what they grew up on. You know, yeah. you got, you know, COC from North Carolina, you know, and, and Suicidal Tendencies and, and, and a bunch of other bands. They just became more metal bands because you saw people like Metallica and these bands were all coming up around 84, 85, 83. And they obviously had and, and even Slayer, you know, they had, you know, some punk rock roots, but they were heavy metal bands, right? And it just got a little bit boring to me. I mean, some of it was great, you know, but it was just it just it wasn't exciting to me and it wasn't as rebellious to me as the original, you know, stuff. And then all of a sudden hip hop came up and I was really loving the dynamic of it. I just loved everything about it. So I just became involved in it. And when I became involved in it, I want to help it out. I'm like a person who just likes to promote what they like. You know, I want to help people be seen, right? If you have good imagery, people are going to hear about you. It's like you didn't have the internet back then. Photos were the way that people heard about you. You couldn't even put up an MP3. You couldn't have a website where people could just hear your music. People needed to see you and hear you, you know? And that's why, you know, album covers used to be really important. But I think that it's obviously not just about the imagery. And it's not always just about the music either. I mean, you know, Public Enemy was very you know, perceptive. And they knew that because those guys worked in record stores, you know, Hank Schott, worked in a record store. So I think, you know, and Chuck D was a graphic designer. They knew that imagery was important. I mean, people used to go to a record store and you'd thumb through the racks of album covers, 12 by 12 inches. And you see, Oh shit, this looks like something I want to check out. And then you would buy it, you know, because, and, and certainly with punk rock records, you didn't hear shit on the radio unless you had a weird college radio station in your town that was playing it. You had to, it was word of mouth. It was fanzine. And it was a record cover that spoke to people very often. And certainly all those early Def Jam covers I did, you know, it brought hip hop to another level of, you know, of the photography, you know, and, and the imagery for people to see and recognize something, you know, of quality and excitement. And, you know, and it kind of started, uh, you know, a nice little visual revolution in that area, in that space.
0: Are there some parallels with your career and how we've navigated the industry? In other words, like with the exception of maybe some of the Def Jam stuff that you did, cause you worked with them a lot. Like I get the impression that you were never the guy to sit around and wait for a phone call and some random art director goes, get me Glenn Friedman. Like your access really came from the inside out rather than the outside in. Is that a fair statement?
1: That's very fair. No art director ever hired me. They didn't like me. I'm too bossy. I control my own situation. No art director ever came on a shoot of mine. Almost, there's very few art directors, art directors that art directed anything I did ever. You know, people got credit for it and they're mostly kooks. There's a couple of good ones. You know, there's Cab Deluxe, who did the Ice Power. He was great. He did the lettering, he did a lot of beautiful things. There might have been a couple other art directors that I worked with that, you know, that added to the project. But generally, I would go so far as to pick the fonts and you know, tell them what was going on. No one told me what was going on. No one hired me. I did the work, like you said, except for with the Def Jam stuff, you know, there might be an agreement ahead of time. Okay. Glenn's going to do the album cover because he does all these other album covers and this is going to be the agreement and this, you know, and the, the, you know, payment or whatever. But generally I shot stuff and I would sell it later. I work with people, you know, when I did the Check Your Head album cover, I just shot the photos because those were my friends. We just went out and did it. And that was that I wasn't hired to do it. And then later on, they paid me for the cover and they paid me for the skills to pay the bills and, you know, a a VHS cover and for all the promotional posters that we did together over the years. I was never hired to do any of that stuff. I just shot them because these are my friends and this is stuff that inspired me. You know, the truth is, is that, you know, all these great photos that I made, I made them because the artists were inspiring me as well. You know, that's why I wanted to do it, you know. Um, again, most art directors didn't like me. They didn't want to work with me. They don't need to work with me. I had too much fucking attitude for them. They like to control shit. And I mean, you know, and there was also Tony Solari. I remember these few names of guys who were very cool art directors and they did help with my projects. But there's a lot of other kooks who are like famous now who didn't do shit. They didn't do a fucking thing. They're not even creative people. They fucking are kooks, man. So many people get over in that fucking music industry business. They get off and call themselves art directors. They're fucking kooks, man. They don't fucking do shit for me. They fucking follow directions and and maybe have some little bullshit ideas here and there. But, you know, I'm actually, you know, because then I see a lot of those people. And the reason I get so animated about it is because photography, if you're a good photographer, your fucking work speaks for itself. You don't need a lot of text. You don't need a lot of frills. You don't need someone controlling your shit. If you're a good photographer, the fucking photo tells the story. If you're not that good, then you need some extra shit. Then you need someone to fucking art direct your shit. And that's just not me. That's not where I'm from. It's not never what I did. 90% of what I shot over the years, it was not something that was done for hire ever. It was just, just that I did it and then we worked it out later. Can you name
0: what you, even if it's only one or two instances, do you have one example in your career where somebody that you worked with, you were, uh, you handed over your photos or you said, Oh, okay, here's, this is what I want to submit. And then they actually were talented enough to add something to it. And you are actually like, wow, you, you actually added something to to what I created rather than trying to take it away.
1: Um, that's, well, generally, that didn't happen. I mean, you know, there were mistakes like on Public enemies, second album cover, uh, It Takes a Nation a Million. An art director took it from us and we designed the whole thing. And then they changed the colors and fucked up the whole thing. You know, I could only think of things where people usually fuck stuff up, you <laughs> know? Um, you know when they didn't listen to specifically what we said. We have very specific things in mind, and particularly when I work with Public Enemy, Chuck D being a graphic designer himself. You know we knew what we wanted, and you know he's more forgiving of a guy than I am. I mean I have very specific vision, you know, and uh, and I would get very angry when stuff wasn't done exactly as I said. But you know mistakes happen. People make mistakes, and I make mistakes too. But, um, you know, like the Power album cover, the lettering that Tony, that, that, uh, that Cab Deluxe did for that was beautiful, you know. And it's one of my least favorite album covers because it's shot in the studio, but it's one of the most popular ones. He also had the idea of embossing, you know, the body. So everyone's like feeling Darlene's ass in the record store, you know, at the time. It was huge. It was a very big deal. People bought that album because of the cover. Um, I mean, most people will tell you that. I don't take pride in that. There were good songs in it, but it was a very at the time it was a very provocative cover and the fact that it was in Boston. And, and so that art director did a great job. You know, he, he did, he did a really good thing with my, to be honest, we're very mediocre studio photos, you know, it's just, but it was an idea that it is the third album cover that me and I see it did together. So, or the second, and we'd done a lot of single covers and we I'd known him since he lived in a garage, you know, so, but it was his idea. He wanted to shoot the front and the back. And so, you know, and, and, so there wasn't too much for me to do with that. You know, we did it in the studio. James Casmus did it down at art brewers photo studio. You know, he lit it for me because I didn't know how to fucking work stuff in the studio, but yeah. that art director indeed made that a nice cover. a really cool cover. And it was the first rap cover not to have the artist's name on the cover. You know, it wasn't there. They put a sticker on the cellophane, uh, you know, on the, on the shrink wrap, but they didn't have the, the artist's name. It just said power on the bottom. It was pretty dope. Yeah. You know, there, there aren't too many examples, of when uh people you know i mean even slick rick the great adventures of slick rick album cover you know i told them i wanted it to look like indiana jones that was my idea to have that lettering you know um and uh tony the uh, art director found a guy back then it wasn't just a you know you had to do that by hand back then you know and and there were fonts you had to stretch them and it was a whole different way of doing it but, uh, but that was one, you know, that, uh, that, that the art director, you know, he took our ideas and, and went in a good place with it, you know?
0: Oh, what about the layout link well, throughout your career? The books that you've put out, um, has it been a collaborative process or are you? Well, really that's hard? a
1: really good question because the last book that I worked that I did, the Together Forever book is the first book that I did that I didn't design myself. Certainly like my Fuck You Too book and The Idealist were helped by a wonderful artist named Chris Abib and he taught me how to do quark and how to design books on a computer. And Chris was uh, very instrumental in me getting, a, you know, knowing how to work the mechanics of the stuff. And he pretty much did the whole Fuck You two book with me over his shoulder. And then when it came time to be idealist, he helped me do like a couple little things in it. And then I, from there, I've just been doing them all myself. The My Rules book was done with me and, and uh, Cleon from, uh, who was at the time was, was working for Shepherd Perry. And it was with Shepherd Perry that we did the My Rules book, but it was mostly my stuff. That book was already designed. And we just recreated it. The Together Forever book was done by a wonderful photographer and an incredible guy, Matthew Baton. And he is, um, he's a photographer and a designer. And he really took the reins on this one. I mean, I was definitely over his shoulder and on the computer screen sharing a lot. But he had a lot of really great ideas. And being a great photographer and someone whose work I appreciated. And his, his demeanor, the way he worked with me was really great. So yeah, he did that last book with me but it was he was a designer for sure officially he was a designer i came up with some ideas in the 11th hour you know like doing the gold foil for the text on the front and uh and then even on the on the uh you know the um you know on the edges of the book you know doing the uh you know, what do you call it? The gilding on the edge of the book. Yeah, you know, It's, that's
0: a, it's yeah. a beautiful book, man. And I'm like, I'm, I'm super blessed to have not only a signed copy by you, but, um, you know, last time I saw you was at the book event and was able to get a copy, uh, signed by, by Chuck D and run and, uh, and D yeah. That. that shit is
1: nice, man. That shit is nice. <laughs> you know, it's got that reflective shit on it and and just all that. That's a fucking nice book, man. Motherfucker should go out and get this we had some problems with distribution and uh, it kind of fell off. It was really weird. Everyone expected it to be a huge book. This is my art book, by the way, this is a book that's that me. everyone should get. This is an that's amazing gorgeous. book. If you, if you're really a photographer and you want to know about my aesthetic, this book called the idealist, that's it. You could only get it on Amazon. Now it's like the only way to get it. And it's a 25 year edition. There was a 20 year edition, but I think, could you guys read that? I hope it's not backwards. No, but, great. um, in my eyes, 25 years. And, uh, if you're a photographer, this is my book that you want, if you don't care about all the other subjects. now there's skating in there and there's punk rock in there and there's hip hop in there, but it's only in there because of its aesthetic value. It's not based on who it's of. And there's, and there's not much in there of that stuff. I say less, you know, less than half of it is that there's a lot of landscapes and other stuff, you know?
0: Um, so I assume, and I I guess I know the answer is this, but I assume when you first started shooting skateboarding, when you're 13, 14 years old, you weren't in it for the money. It wasn't even money to be had back then. You were there because it, you were passionate about it. You had to be there. You had to document it into something that you were, you know, driven to, to shoot. If you were 14 today, what would you be shooting? Like what, is there something that you think you would be inspired by? Well, today? let me
1: just be clear too, though. There was no money to be made on anything back then. It just, when I started shooting skateboarding or punk rock, even hip hop, like in the beginning, it's like, you didn't, I didn't shoot anything because I was thinking of money. I shot, I made these photographs because I was inspired by what the artists were doing. And I wanted to help spread their ideals and my ideals, because what they were thinking is what I was thinking. And I wanted more people to know about these things. You know, when I started shooting skateboarding, I was like, I'm seeing these guys do things that, you know, that's life changing for me and no one else is doing it the way I want to see it. I was a skater. So I wanted to you know, show people what the fuck it was really like, not these corny ass photos in some of the magazines, not that there wasn't some good stuff, but I felt as though I could do better even when I was 14 and 13. And so I just started doing it. Now they might not have been better, but it felt better to me (laughs) because it was my vision. And this is what I was seeing. And this is what I was feeling, you know, and that's what I wanted to express. And I learned that this was my expression, right? Is to tell stories with my vision. And that's what I did was, whether it be skateboarding or punk rock or hip hop. This is what I saw. This is how I idealized their images, right? How I idealized these subjects is the way I wanted to see them and I wanted other people to see them. So I composed these images in order to kick people in the ass, wake them up and get them into the shit I was into.
0: So I guess what I'm getting at. So, I mean, you, you kind of, you name checked three relatively distinct different cultures that you have, like some really iconic shots of punk rock, hip hop, skateboarding is there something today that you think is that important that, you know, maybe you're not the person to document it or you don't have the time or you don't have the, the, the access, but I mean, what do you think you would be shooting today if you were
1: 14? I have no idea. You have to ask a 14 year old, you know, people need to just shoot what inspires them. It's not about just, you know, if you're inspired by the protests that are going on now, that's what you should shoot. As far as I'm concerned, there's too many people shooting them and it's over-documented but, you know, but if you're feeling something and you have a perspective on it that you don't think anyone else has that you could get because you're there every day fucking slamming your fist in the air or into a Nazi face or through a glass window. If you can get a perspective on that, that only you could get, then that's what you should be doing. And I mean, whether you're into, you know, the, the protest or you're into skateboarding or you're into music of some kind, if you're going to be someone who makes photographs, you need to just make them and not just take them cause anyone can fucking take a photo now, you know, with a phone, you could actually take a pretty good photo now. Uh, at least some degree, you really have to, you know, I would recommend people, you know, going back and looking at the Renaissance painters and look at beautiful, you know, really well composed composition and lighting and composition and lighting. Exactly. And more than that in this day and age is character. It's not, you know, I don't, I hate the term. That's a great capture. Like, Fuck you. It's not a capture. It's a composition. If I'm making it, you might capture something special, but you're also composing it to tell a story that only you could tell, right? If someone else could do it, then you should move on to the next thing, right? Do what you fucking do. Do it, show it in your unique eye. show it the way, you know, it means everything to you. That's the way it should be. I think that's why
0: so many of your your photographs resonate to the public because it's, it's so apparent that you were not just documenting the culture from, the sidelines, like you were, you were part of it. These are your friends. These are people you respected. These are people that you were inspired by. Um, And you know, it's, I guess what I'm getting guys, it's really hard to, to do that multiple times and find, you know, multiple things that inspire you.
1: I was a very driven person. I was just very driven. You know, I never drank alcohol. I never did drugs except for when I was forced, when I was a little kid, you know, by peer pressure, but, you know, that was all behind me by the time I was 15, you know, and it was just, I was very driven by the cultures. You know, I grew up as the child of the sixties and seventies, you know, you know, people might not realize it unless they know all of my work, but it's all very political too. You know, I'm trying to show a very radical angle on life. You know, skateboarders were fucking radical, punk rockers and skateboarders are radical, not only in the activity that they were doing, but in the mind and attitude. And obviously, punk rockers are radical, except we had these fringe, you know, right wing idiot elements. But mostly people are very progressive and very intelligent. You know, most of them, the ones that I hung out with people, younger people might not know now. You know, back then in the early, you know, punk rock days, people were intelligent. People were really thinking and they were really progressive and really way out ahead of everyone else. Um, The scenes were very mixed, you know, racially and sexually you know, and certainly philosophically, it was, there was real things going on, you know, and hip hop in the beginning as well was very progressive. I mean, it was basically kids making their own thing. All three of these activities, right. were not controlled by any adults. There was nothing, there was nothing before them that you could just copy. You know, you could be in a punk rock band now and your dad might've been in a fucking punk rock band. Your fucking grandpa could teach you how to fucking skateboard now. When we were yeah. skateboarding there was no one to tell you what to do it was only based in youth culture it's only youth it was youth generated there was the only old people they were maybe making some of the boards but we even made our own skateboards in school other than the you know the hardware you we made our own boards we cut them out in wood shop and sanded them down you know and and, and that's what we did you know that's, that that was the thing you know you didn't go and buy a board; you made your boards. Eventually, you would buy boards when they became more, you know, advanced in their technology and, and and how you know they could make riding actually easier, not just going down the street. But um, but all of these things were very progressive things, you know. And this is what inspired me, and this is what I was trying to inspire other people with. You know, my pictures and, and the imagery is to inspire rebellion; it's to inspire rebellious thought and progressive ideals. That's why I took all these fucking photos. You could think, Oh, that's a cool skate shot. Shut the fuck up, Glenn. We don't care about your politics. Fuck you. I don't give a shit that you like the fucking photo. This is what I wanted to portray. If you see that, that's fine. You can see whatever the fuck you want to see, but I'm just letting you know, the truth is I was trying to inspire rebellion and progressive thinking that's... in every fucking photo I made, even if it's shooting pictures of, you know, iced tea, you know, with the, with his gun or with his girl or, or whether it's Tony Alva giving me the middle finger when I'm, 14 years old at a pool that were, you know, busted into the, in, in Beverly Hills, you know, uh, trespassing, or if it's, you know, minor threat on the stage of CBGBs or the bad brains on the stage of CBGBs or a black flag at a you know, party that I was throwing the day I wanted to shoot, you know, the, the imagery for the suicidal tendencies album cover, you know, it, it's all about promoting a very progressive ideal, right? That's what all my fucking photos are. It's not about anything else. There's now in my art, they are beautiful. They're pretty pictures. Some of them is and my landscape, stuff like that, but that's my vision of composition. And that's just to show people that I care deeply about this shit. And that's why I work so hard to make these beautiful images. It's not just fucking snap shooting and capturing it's fucking composing character. Well, let
0: me, let me ask you this. So it, it seems like music, especially now more than ever, it, it's a, it's a young man's game as opposed to, let's say, film directing or writing where you could create some of your best work, like up until the later part of your life, like on, on that spectrum as an art form, where do you think photography lies?
1: Um, I don't know. That's a good question. I think, I think photography is good for any age. If you're inspired and you want to share a story with someone or share some imagery with someone in order to inspire someone else, no matter what fucking age you are, that's when you should take and make pictures. Right. And then, you know, look at, You know, I've been in the quarantine. I've been taking pictures of my fucking, you know, meals that I've been cooking for my friends. That's not really photography. That's just fucking documenting something. And that's when we talk about photography, that's we're not talking about documenting shit, you know, but I think you could be a photographer, a real photographer, you know, depending on your perspective on it, you know, again, I'm not so much of the documentary type. I'm more of the artistic type. I like to create images to inspire people. And I think that's the best form of photography that there is. And you could do that at any fucking age, at any age. You know, I remember sitting in the back of a car back in 1987 and me and Chuck D and Hank Shockley, Harry Allen, maybe Mr. Bill. And we're all just coming back to the Latin quarters or something. And and I'm they know my photography. Chuck and Hank knew my photography from my punk rock zine that I made my rules. You know, they respected the hell out of that before I even shot a picture of Public Enemy. But they always said to me, said, you know, Glenn, we're just here for a moment. We're not here forever. We're, you know, this rap game is quick, but your photography, you're going to get to do this your whole life. You, your shit is set up. And I didn't, I didn't even think of it in that way at all. And and, I mean, it stuck in my head. But when, when Chuck said that, it's like, you know, you could do this forever. Your work, you know, you don't, you know, but this hip hop shit, this is a young man's game. And he, he already felt like he was aged out after his first album. He thought, you know, they wanted to be a production team. They weren't looking to be, recording artist, but you know, here he is 60 years, 60 years old and he's still making records.
0: Does that present a paradox for you of, as an artist, as a photographer, or somebody who just is so has to be so inspired and so integrated into the culture of what they're documenting? Is it make it more difficult for you to take photographs as you get older and older, because you feel like you're disconnected with, you know, whatever new scene is going on on the streets that, you know, that you no, were there for the first time
1: no, I don't feel the need to document everything. When I get inspired by something and I'm a part of it, or if I think I could do it in a way that other people, you know, they, they could help inspire other people, then I'll go out and do it. But otherwise I'm, you know, lucky because my archive is very strong and I've done a lot of stuff with it. And, you know, and I make my books and I, I mean, for lack of a better way to explain it, I do live off my archive. You know, I, I've never had to make photos that I didn't want to make in order to make a living. You know, that's a work ethic. And that's something I learned from my parents and from black flag. You know, my dad is 85. My mom is, she doesn't want her age. to don't, but you know, she's, she still works too. They both, my parents still work every fucking day. And I work, you know, one and, and in skateboarding, I had to fucking prove myself every day to hang out with the guys on the tough side of town. When I came from the nice side of town, My work had to speak for itself. Otherwise, I wouldn't be allowed to be hanging out there. Black Flag also I worked with, right? And I saw Black Flag was the epitome of DIY. Like, we all did it ourselves because there was no other way to do it. But Black Flag took it to a professional level. Like, they fucking did mailings to magazines and the newspapers with news about their band, you know, and and put up posters on the streets, wheat pasting themselves, you know, flyers and stuff to let people know about the shows. They didn't, they were not fucking around. People were not fucking lazy, just chilling. People were working it. They fucking traveled. They slept on floors to spread the fucking word of their gospel. You know what I mean? Of, 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 you know, punk rock, whatever it was at the time, you know, progressive politics, you know, personal politics, just to wake people the fuck up and, you know, and, and seeing how they were so methodical and how they did it taught me a lot. I mean, Henry Rollins would sit there in 1982 and would be, you know, writing letters back to fans, you know, himself, and just answering the fan mail and, and, and helping, you know, and Chuck D would, you know, I mean, Chuck Dukowski D would, you know, would be (laughs) rubbing off the letters to make the flyers. You know, everyone did shit themselves and, you know, and they all slept in one room in a fucking office is where they slept. They didn't have money to sleep anywhere else. I mean, this is a fucking, these are people who are working and caring and very, Passionate, like I am about what we do and what we've done. So, I've figured out how to make it work over the years. And it's incredible to me that the photographs still speak to people, but that's very gratifying. It, you know, it, 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 that's something I did 40 years ago, even more. I still mean, resonates, I'm, 50, yeah. I'm 58 now. That's 44 years ago that I took my first published photo when I was 14 years old. It's still some of people, you know. Some people, it's their favorite photo. You know, it's like, and and all through the time, it's like, I was very passionate about what I was doing. I'm still passionate about what I've done and what I continue to do. But is it no? I don't go out every day. I never carry a fucking camera. Sometimes I carry the phone. I haven't shot a roll of film, you know, in a couple of months, if not a half a year. Yeah, with COVID, I haven't shot films. Yeah. In, I don't even know when. I, you know, uh, but the work that spoke to people then speaks even louder to some people now. So I'm able to loan it to people for magazines or people come to me, you know, serious collectors for prints, or I make my book or for documentaries. And somehow I'm able to eat out a living doing this shit. Which
0: is- what's, your, what's your take on the current state of photography? Because like on one hand, you know, you're definitely one of the, the, the best that ever did it. But at the same time, when you first started, there was a... Well, that's a
1: nice thing to say.
0: No, I, that's, that's sincere though. Seriously. Um, but at the same time, there was a, there was a real distinct barrier of entry when you first started. I mean, like you had to just even know how to load a camera, focus a camera, F-stop shutter yeah. speed, hit film developed, yeah. you know, as in, you cut to today, like there's been this democratization of photography, which, you know, if you're a 14 year old kid with an iPhone, that's great as a professional photographer, you know, maybe we have a different perspective of, like, what's your take on photography moving forward with just this like white noise of fucking imagery everywhere, you know, like it just, does it, does it demean and, and, and lessen the impact of, of great photography?
1: I think that a great photo still stands out, whether it's taken with an iPhone or a fucking Nikon or my Pentex K1000, you know, that I still use the most common camera ever made in the history of the world until digital photography came along. It was the most common film camera okay, given to first year photography students. Right. It was a hundred dollar camera with the lens. Yeah. Um, and well, I guess mean, my question is, like, I'm
0: not, a, I'm not a techno- technological purist. I don't give a fuck what a picture was taken on if it's a great yeah, yeah, photo. Yeah. But my point is, is that the great photos often just get buried in a sea of shitty photos because everyone's taking them because of the ease of photography. That's like- a good
1: point. Um, because I even think in the late nineties, there was this photography that was being accepted as being good because really, and it wasn't that photography wasn't democratized so much yet. It's that desktop publishing made magazines more prevalent and there were more places to print magazines. And all of a sudden they didn't have enough good photos. So they started using shitty whack ass photos from whack photographers, people just documenting things. And all of a sudden some magazine and art directors started thinking, well, we could make this look good. If we put it out there and say it's good, then they'll believe it's good. All we have to do is put some nice text around it, whether it's Dazed and Confused or Raygun, you know, these fucking, you know, over-designed, over-graphic magazines that dealt with shitty photography, right? And there were other ones too. There's a lot of magazines that just dealt with shitty photography and they gave the, I I forget some of these guys' names, you know, uh, that one pervert dude and, you know, all these other people, you know, they take these pictures and they're just whack. They just suck. They're not good photographs. They're anything that anyone could take. And it's just like, but, but it was all about the emperor's new clothes, man. These fucking editors, they just needed content and they wanted to be a new kind of cool. And there weren't that many good photographers, so they made it acceptable, right? And to your point, it's like, I think a great photograph stands out, you know, whether you take it today or you took it 50 years ago. And even if there's a thousand photos today, not everyone is gonna recognize the great picture. But you know, when you were raised on skateboarding, for instance, you get a sense of timing. If you use the fisheye lens, a wide angle lens to shoot and, and capture the exact specific moment and compose it and get character, right? You've got a fucking sense of timing and a sense of composition that most other people don't have. I think skateboarder photographers, skateboarding photographers are some of the best ones out there, particularly if they came from that era when we were all getting close to the action while also showing the environment. But I think that your passion will show up in the photograph and an iPhone can take some great pictures. I've taken some good ones with an iPhone myself. But I think it really takes 35 millimeter camera. Maybe digital can do it. I've never used a digital 35 millimeter camera. I don't own one. Um, I've borrowed one for like, you know, someone would let me borrow their camera for 10 minutes. And, you know, and that would be it. And and I think it kind of works the same. But photography is so much easier nowadays to actually, you know, the technology part of it is very, it's, it's like infinitely easier. You don't even need to know how to focus necessarily. You don't need to know about light necessarily. But if you're a True artist and a great photographer. You want to control those elements yourself. You will focus on the point of the picture that you want to. You don't want to let the camera get it. You will have the exposure as you want it to be. But everything else is—it's certainly so much more forgiving now. And there's a lot more great photos, by the way, now than there used to be. But that's just because there's so many there's so more many more photos. photos. Yeah, 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 yeah. So I mean, I think it's all good. But and, and there's a lot of throwaway stuff, and you know, and and you know, but. When people see something that really speaks them and tells more of a story, you know, they'll quit, you know, flipping and they'll stop. And, Maybe. They'll stop. Yeah. and if they don't, then fuck them. Who cares? They're not the <laughs> type of person you're going to speak to anyways. I don't give a shit. So I made this book called Recognize. And my book Recognize was just 60 pages of photographs of clouds. And just like my photographs of everything else that I did, I was very passionate about it. And it was also from the inside. You know, I'm never an outsider. I always five voyeurs coming into my scene you know old people coming to you know shoot skateboarding who didn't skate themselves old people coming to a punk rock show or just exploiters coming to a punk rock show and shooting pictures because they think it's cool or something exciting and and they want to just extract from it and not give anything back they just want to take that always pissed me off and the same with hip-hop hip-hop was a part of my life too you know and it still is i love hip-hop music that's why i had the passion for the work so my book recognized was a reaction that so Again, like I'm an insider in most of the things I shot, I wanted to shoot clouds as though I was a bird. I wanted to shoot clouds from within the clouds themselves. So I have a whole book, 60 different images, I think, or 64 images of clouds. And they're just beautiful compositions. Now, I picked clouds because it's the most universal subject that I could think of on the planet. Like, not everyone's seen the ocean. Not everyone's seen a mountain. Not everyone's seen a building. But everyone's seen a fucking cloud right? And they're really fucking beautiful. And there's no two that are exactly alike. They're like snowflakes. And I wanted to show people how you could compose an image with something that you can't even control at all. And I was shooting these things literally on the fly. I'm sitting in the back of coach in airplane rides, transcontinental, transatlantic for five years, whenever I would do a normal, you know, when I was doing shows or doing whatever I was doing, I would just get a window seat in the back, fucking Lean that fucking window and fucking just look out the window for three hours, six hours, eight hours straight, just waiting for fucking clouds. And then on the fly, compose a beautiful image that in its own ways, you know, showed composition and showed color and showed texture. And to show people that with something as simple as this, this is photography one. This is my photography one course. To take something so simple. And to show you, this is how you really take a beautiful and make a beautiful photograph of something that you can't even control. And that was, and half of that was a reaction to all that shitty photography coming out.
0: I mean, I I think it's, it's sometimes more challenging to shoot something that's simple than something that's extravagant or outlandish or, you know, outrageous. So I, I think that's a, that's an interesting concept. I mean, I'm curious as how, how it was received.
1: It was, it was a real art project. All the money came right out of my pocket. And went into making that book and, uh, we printed, I think, uh, 1500 of them, but then they had to be reprinted because there was a problem with some gluing. And I think we probably have, we have a lot left, but we sold over a thousand of them and which is very low for my books, you know, it's still available.
0: Well, if you had to pick, and then this is i I'm sure a hard question, but like if you had to pick one image that really embodies all of, the politics and all of the culture and all of the creativity and all the knowledge that you've put into your photos over the year, do you have one picture that, that you would really want to kind of have encapsulate or stand for everything you've done in your career? Absolutely not.
1: No, there's not one photograph that can do that. Absolutely not. Super fair. Super fair. I know
0: just, I know there's some photographers that like, they kind of hang their, they hang their, they hang their hat on like, Oh, this is, this is my, my masterpiece. If you
1: do that, that shit better be really fucking good. It better yeah. be
0: good and that also means your career is done because yeah. you know you're not, you're not gonna take another all right well i would like to close on this i know you we, we know we've, we've got a chance to really get inside your head and 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 to hear about some of these great photos behind your or great stories behind your photos but i would like to give guests an opportunity to kind of shine some light on something that's inspiring them lately like do you have a book or a movie or an artist or anything that's that, a new album anything that's really been inspiring you lately that you want to like give a little shout out to
1: The thing that's most inspiring me now is Alexandra Ocasio-Cortez. If anyone is listening to this and could get me a photo session with her, I would be very, very grateful. I've been trying to shoot a portrait of her, wanting to shoot a portrait of her. And, you know, people might think that I'm famous or I'm well-known and people respect me. I have reached out to every fucking person I know since before she went to Congress. As soon as she got elected, before she went down there and became a congressperson, I've been wanting to shoot her portrait because she is so inspiring and has so much energy and it's so much positive mental attitude that she is inspiring to me. The political movements that are happening now are really inspiring to me. And, and, and that's really what it is. Uh, I love the new Kariki record by Ian Mackay and Amy Farina and Joe Lally. That's a great album and it's super fun. And and it's just great music made by one of my best friends in the world. There's a lot of stuff that still still inspires me, but most of it, particularly at the moment. And it always usually is something political. But I think AOC, she's the shit. She's amazing. She's doing something and she's working hard. And, you know, but but I love all the artwork coming out of the last, you know, everyone's been quarantined. And I think, you know, I love that, you know, the mayor of Washington, D.C. called 16, you know, Pennsylvania Avenue, you know, the, where they close off the street, Black Lives Matter Square. And I think, you know, I think there's I think a lot of people are really inspired and doing some good things in this Internet age, though. Everything has such a short shelf life that I'm afraid so much great stuff is getting lost, but so much of it is being seen. It's just a shame that it kind of gets cycled through and disappears very quickly. I can't say, you know, I've got a 13 year old kid and that's inspiring to me sometimes. And sometimes it's, uh, it's depressing, you know, and, but, uh, it's, it, it, it's tough. And, um, but it's usually really very inspiring to have a child in your life. And, um, but, you know, my friends are inspiring me, you know, that yeah. really that, that's what it is. I mean, you know, I, I've got some really close friends that continue to inspire me. And and I think that that's what's really, you know, that, you know, especially in this period of time, I don't know when this you'll air this. And, you know, I'm sure COVID will probably still be in the picture because, you know, because it's going to be around for a while. Still. It's not going away anytime yeah, soon. Um, yeah. I think that, um, you know, our connections that we make online, like we're doing today, and again, all our personal connections and our connections to others, when we do go out to protest. And we get inspired by the energy. There is so, so much to fight for and to live for. And, and sometimes it's even worth dying for. You know, if you make your mark and you say something and you get, you know, try and make the world a better place, you know, that, that's really what everything is about. Inspiring rebellion and inspiring radical behavior. It's not just for the sake of fucking how good it feels to, you know, to break something or to do something radical. It's because you want to make the world a better place. That's what I think.
0: Let's everybody get their ass together for November.
1: It goes way beyond November. And, you know, hopefully November is, is that's a big deal. And I mean, I will say, you know, a lot of people say they, uh, I'll just leave you on this. You know, they don't believe in the system. The system is corrupt and it's fucked up and all this. But if you don't vote in November, just because you think the system is fucked up and you want to see it fall, you're an elitist. Okay. You think you're better than everyone else and you're letting other people decide for you. And that's fucked up because. People will suffer if you don't vote for what you think is a better future and fuck the Republicans and fuck the conservatives. They don't give a shit about anyone, but their friends. And you, you, people listen to this need to speak up more and get, speak your mind more and let people know what you think. You don't have to be like, Oh, just get out and vote. No, you got to vote for people who fucking care about people. And if you don't think look at Joe Biden is my least favorite of all the candidates. And I don't even know if he'll be alive in November. So I'm not worrying about that. All I know, is that I'm going to vote for whoever has, creates and leaves less people suffering. Because people are suffering and people will be suffering. And until we get a completely new system or we just evolve more politically, yes, no one is going to be perfect. Everyone has fucking problems. But if you just sit out because you think someone's an asshole, you read that he did this wrong or he did that wrong, you're voting for the side of evil if you don't vote against evil. Vote for the lesser of two evils. You know, people you say you got to vote with your heart, not with your fears. I'm sorry, people, the fucking planet for human inhabitation is going to end if you just accept that and you vote with your heart like, you know, I voted for Ralph Nader for a long time and it didn't make any impact whatsoever, unfortunately, and eventually I voted for Obama because I wanted to prevent suffering, okay? And that's what you need to do. There will be more suffering if you have those conservative Republican pieces of shit in office than if you have the Democrats or whatever they are. You know the uh, neoliberals or whatever. Listen, I don't love them either. But you cannot be such a goddamn elitist and think, oh, I'm just going to sit this one out. They all suck. They're all bad. I can't vote for that it's, person because he's a dick it's, too. Lazy,
0: it's lazy too. It's lazy. It's lazy it's just, cover. It, yeah. it,
1: it, it's lazy and it's inconsiderate and it's fucking elitist. You think you're better than everyone else and you don't have to fucking participate in the system. Fuck you. That's what I think.
0: Glenn, dude, thanks for sitting down, man. I really, I feel My like we touched on it. My pleasure. You're all. a good
1: dude, a good friend. You've always been a nice guy. Anyone who doesn't sit with you, who knows you, is a fucking kook. And, uh, you know, it's all good.
0: I'll talk to you soon,
1: all right? Okay, take care. Peace.
0: This episode of The Plug was produced by Bucci with audio engineering and original music by Peter Buckingham. Thanks for listening, and a huge thanks to today's guests for dropping in. If you liked this episode, hit subscribe and be sure to tune in for future conversations.